I'm not recording a backup. Yeah, no one cares. No and one now, cares. coming to you live from the Grocery Room High Above the Coochie Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand, Gary K. Wolf on the Coochie Podcast. Hey, Gary. That sounded really enthusiastic for somebody who just came back from a dream vacation in Tuscany. I'm tired. I got a bit of the flu. I don't know. Oh, dear. We, 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 we took a month off. You know, I'm not feeling enthused. I mean, I always enjoy talking to you, but yeah, I don't know. We don't have anything mm-hmm. to talk about. You know, we'll flail around later on if something gets flaily. Hello, everybody. Welcome oh. back. Welcome back to the Pood Street Podcast. Oh, jeez. Okay, I'm as bad as you are. You're not going to um, get to do that live, Gary. I... I that was I did not do that deliberately. That uh-huh. actually just happened. See, and there's it's another example why you're not going to get to do that live. Actually, okay, speaking of doing it live, we should mention to our listeners who might be showing up at Kansas City at Mid American Two that we will be doing a live a live podcast. podcast. It is true podcast. that on I believe and, was it Friday. I believe it's Friday afternoon, in fact, Friday evening. Now be afternoon. I think it's like f- I'm getting the time up while while we're, while we're talking. See, this is this is some slick Cood Street management here, people. Uh, as we sit here and we pull up that at three p.m. on Saturday, the twentieth of August. Oh yeah, uh, we both had it absolutely right, didn't we? That's right. Three p.m. Saturday, the twentieth of August. If you are at Mid American Two, <coughs> the two thousand and sixteen World Science Fiction Convention held in Kansas City, Missouri, because they couldn't put Kansas City in Kansas for some reason. Um, we will be talking to very, very, very special guests, Michael Swanwick, Worldcon Guest of Honor, and Kids Johnson, all-round legend, about the art and craft of writing and understanding short fiction. And we will be using as our model of analysis the story that we encourage you all to read if you're coming or going to listen to afterwards, The Women Men Don't See by James Tiptree Jr. Which should be widely available, it should be widely familiar. It's a story which is, like many stories, uh, enters the dialogue of science fiction and people keep talking about it in ways that that stretch the definition of the genre. I mean, obviously, Karen Joy Fowler wrote a story called What I Didn't See, which isn't a science fiction story, but it is if you think of it in terms of the James Tiptree story. Sure. Uh, and the purpose, if you're interested, if you're going to attend, or if you're going to listen to the episode later, is very simple, very straightforward. There is a comment, I believe you referred it to me, Gary, in the introduction to the new Michael Swanwick collection that is coming out from Tachyon, where Michael yes. talks about studying classic short stories, deconstructing them to teach himself how to write better short fiction. Mm-hmm. And so we thought that it would be interesting to do that with Michael and Kidge live, deconstruct the women men don't see a little bit, see why it works, talk about why it's important, and then whatever else comes up during the conversation. And whatever else comes up. And Kidge Kidge also is part of the um, uh, organization, part of the University of Kansas, which I gather is organizing most of the academic directs. So Kidge has taught these stories, as I have, to, to students, which is also interesting. It's interesting when you talk about analyzing a story to look at it from the point of view of, I don't know, a clarion class, or to look at it from the point of view of a, of a writer's workshop. I don't know whether writer's workshops look at classic stories at all. But the way you look at how a story works from the point of view of another writer is almost in time, at, at, at sometimes, 
a completely different way that you would look at how a short story works when you're trying to explain to students yeah. what works. For example, uh, one of the stories that keeps coming around, the woman men don't see is, is a classically good story. But one of the stories that will not die, and I'm mentioning this partly because of your year's best, is The Cold Equations by Tom Godwin. You think it's going to go away. And it's not going to go away. Never. It's not going to go away. It's not going but but what's there's a very clever story on I'm going to you're gonna to have to remind me of the author of the Karen Joy Fowler Book Club by Nike Solway, who yes. has been a guest on the podcast. Yes. And it's a very clever story. I'm not going to but because it starts off clearly alluding to a best selling non science fiction novel by Karen Joy Fowler. And okay, I will spoil it. It's a book club of rhinoceroses. Sure. It's interesting. But, I mean, one of the things we're talking about doing on this podcast, Gary, is hopefully having some people in to talk about the ongoing, continuing influence of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, we, we have we have but, but, uh, but, but. kids. John- no, this is relevant. I'm coming back to you. We have this okay, kids, okay, okay, kids okay. Johnson is, has just written the story. Obviously, the Dream Quest of Velvet Bow that just got a starred review in mm. Publishers Weekly, and you should be checking that out if you haven't. Uh, Victor Laval had a wonderful, wonderful novella that came out through Tor.com as well, called The Ballad of Black Tom. Uh, Matt Ruff had his Lovecraft Country, all kinds of examples. Yep. And yet, I mean, you're right to talk about the continuing influence of some classic short stories, stories because the, the Tom Godwin story, which, if I think back over my time in the science fiction field, is probably one of the most discussed, argued, written about stories in the history of the field, continues to influence. There are at least two stories published last year that riff off uh, that. There's the, Nike, the Nikki Solway story that you're talking about, there's a story mm-hmm. in my own book, uh, Meeting Infinity, I think it was, um, called The Cold Equation by Yoon Ha Lee. The, 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 not The Cold Equations, the something, something, yeah, no. something else. But from by Yoon Ha Lee, which riffs off the same thing. Mm-hmm. And right. it's an, the reason that The Cold Equations is and will always remain a important story in the history of the field isn't just its manipulative kind of evolution where Campbell had the story rewritten to meet his formula. Right. It's that it really is an exemplar of a kind of story and a kind of thinking that was key to that 1930s to 50s golden age science fiction. And that's why it's part of the DNA of the field. That's why it will never go away. I think it's part of the DNA of the field, but I think it's part of the DNA of short story writing. It is a story which... I think you're right. I think it became a classic for reasons that have nothing to do with the actual way the story is structured. The story as structured doesn't work. There are all kinds of... There was a famous essay, I think, by Andy Duncan in the New York Review of Science Fiction pointing out how it doesn't work. There have been all these responses to it. James Patrick Kelly has written the stories which correct it, stories which, which go back to it. Uh, and what happens in the, in, the, in the Nikki Solway story is that uh, people keep turning in stories to this writing group that are versions of the cold equations. It's, it's, it's funny on all kinds of elusive ways. But I think what people... Um, in other words, influence may be the wrong word. Stimulus. It's a kind of prod in the field. It's a kind of uh, stick that you keep getting poked with because people think this is what science fiction is and you want to say, no, that's what manipulative, didactic, sexist, colonialist, not sure. very well thought out science fiction. Well, I mean, look, for a start, I mean, it is it is the sand and the oyster of science fiction a little bit. 
or one of mm-hmm. one of those, you know, and that that's valuable. I think also it is a obvious, clear, pardon me, <coughs> rallying uh, spot for a particular way of thinking about science fiction and a particular ar- way mm-hmm. of arguing against what science fiction no longer is. Because it's when people come well, along and say, well, so, I mean, you would think, and I'm putting words in people's mouths, this is oversimplistic, all that. You would think, mm-hmm. right, that, for example, uh, the rabid puppies and the sad puppies would be cold equations readers. You would think so. I don't know that's true. That almost doesn't matter. Because what the cold equations does, what Godwin's story does, as much or as more than any other science fiction story I can immediately think of, is it synopsizes that. It stands for it in one simple package, and everything else can react to it. And try and I think that's true. It. I think there's also a reaction, and this happens among us academics and critics, that, that early by early historians of science fiction, I mean people in the 60s and 70s like Lester Del Rey with the world of science fiction, or even James Gunn with alternate worlds, did cite it seriously as science fiction which presents the universe as unyielding and uncompromising, as unsentimental, as, uh, as, as mechanistically determined, and, and, and that sort of thing isn't what the story does. That's the problem, as a story. So I think we've, we've, we've hit on an interesting topic here which we can probably get, oh, I don't know, another two and a half minutes out of, <laughs> which are stories that are important because of what's wrong with them. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Lovecraft, for example. Now, Kidge Johnson's... The, now, Kidge has said that she really liked, when she was a kid, Lovecraft's story, The Dream Quest of Unknown Cadeth. I could not finish that story. I could not finish any of Lovecraft's fantasy stories because they, they look to me like third-rate, overblown Lord Dunsany stories. Okay. Uh, but she liked it. But nevertheless, it's not as good a story. And this, if there are Lovecraft people out there, I'm sorry, it's not as good a story as Kids Johnson's story is by a long shot. Uh, in the case of Victor Laval, The Ballad of, of Black Tom, uh, the horror at Red Hook is one of Lovecraft's more embarrassingly racist, xenophobic stories. Lovecraft, it's a story that could have been endorsed by Donald Trump, and for all I know, if he ever read anything, might be. But it's not a very good story. It's not nearly as good a story as Victor Laval's take on it. So these are basically, if not actively bad stories, at least flawed stories, which can generate better stories through a kind of negative influence. Well, certainly through the ongoing notion that has always sit, sat in the history, in science fiction that one generation responds to another and so on, and it's an ongoing, evolving discussion, which we've talked about here before. However, you see, Gary, that's nice and that's neat and that's convenient, but it on, it overlooks one thing. There is what, plainly... Is no, there's a, cer- there's, there's a certain visceral energy to the, to the Lovecraft work to the Tom Godwin work, to some other similar work, which keeps it read 60, 70, 80, 90 years after it was written. I, it, it's true. I will, I will say that's certainly true about the, the Godwin book. Probably. I, I, I don't know if Lovecraft continues to be read. I'm not sure if those particular stories continue to be read. So, so I think you're right. There's an energy there. But energy alone doesn't explain it. If energy alone explained it, we would have a number of writers of the current generation responding to A.E. Van Vogt stories, doing World of Null A stories, doing Voyage of the Space. And you don't see Van Vogt being... being Van Vogt is as, as serious a literary criminal as science fiction has ever produced, and people don't feel necessary to take him to task. <laughs> 
Well, actually, you see, that, that's, it is interesting, isn't it? When do you, and we've talked about this before, when do you slip into irrelevance and when do you hold your place, stay in this, the discussion? I mean, to some degree, I suspect, say, a Tom Godwin who's remembered for one work and one work only, really. He, he, I looked him um, up once. He, he wrote one novel called Space, I don't know, Space something or other. He never got nominated for anything. Yeah. He basically had no career to speak of except for that story. Yeah, but what I, what I was going to say was that um, for some reason he has stayed in the dialogue when others have not. I mean, you're quite right. I mean, if you go back and you read, um, I don't know, some, some of the histories of science fiction, they'll, they'll talk about, say, A. Van Vogt's Black Destroyer as one of the first yeah. great space opera stories. Uh, and that's not inaccurate. I think it's the Alexei Panshin book, The World Beyond the Hill, spends... Right, thirty or forty thousand pages talking about it. Maybe fifty thousand pages, yeah. at least. Maybe sixty thousand. All all the correspondence between Campbell and Van Vogt is 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 yeah. summarized in and it. and you know it, it's all kind of synopsized then in New York Review of Science Fiction <laughs> for about a decade and a half. So right. there it is, consuming your life. Who would be reading Black Destroyer today, and why in God's name would you? Well, I, here's the reason, um, and the reason you would be is, and I'm I'm saying this before somebody. Calls in or sends an email incorrect because Black Destroyer, Discord, and Scarlet, the Space Beagle stories, are one way or another the source of a certain kind of science fiction horror fiction that ended up in movies like Alien, Aliens, uh, plus the uh, some of the Colin Wilson's things, uh, movies like Life Force, which was based. In other words, those things sort of worked their way into the science fiction dialogue through the movies. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they, I, I don't think people have responded to them directly as fiction, but I do think you get a certain amount of science fiction that responds to the kind of spaceship as gothic castle that you get in movies like Alien. And an example of that would be Greg Barrett's Hull Zero Three, which is a gothic castle of a spaceship oh, story. And, 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 probably more really isn't. Yeah, and probably more significantly continues through work like uh, Al Reynolds's Revelation space Absolutely. series and those sorts of things. So that and and I think mm-hmm. even through Neil Asher's work and others, so it's had ongoing influence. But yeah, you know, like I'm curious. I mean, one of our readers wrote wrote in today, and we're not going to go into this in any kind of depth. Mm-hmm. But they, they were talking about the just published big book of science fiction by the Van mm-hmm. and for example, they don't c- pick up any A. Van Vogt, and I'm not critical of them for doing so. But it's interesting that people writers who 30, 40 years ago would have been automatic selections, are now fading away. I do think that the Vandermeer said in the introduction that Van Vogt and Heinlein were simply permissions issues, yeah. uh, that they had act gone okay. after them, so, which is another thing Another thing we could rant about a long time, and that is estates and agents and that sort of thing, suppressing the reputations of authors. But I think you're right. I think Van Vogt would have been a name that anybody recognized. I'm, and I, I, this is something I, I try out when I go to places like ReaderCon, where I was just uh, visiting. And talk to younger readers and find out, okay, most of them will, uh, everybody recognizes Bradbury. Everybody recognizes Clark and Heinlein. Not everybody, but most people will recognize Sturgeon. And on that list of classic writers, and, and by the way, everybody today recognizes Cordwainer Smith. Uh, but Van Vogt isn't at the isn't in that top rank of recognizable names anymore among younger writers. Is it because he doesn't have a single like a, a single standalone work, a or a famous piece of work 
that really continues to resonate. We've talked about this before as well, because we've talked about everything yeah. before in the 4,000 episodes we've done. Uh, how, for example, you know, Liber will never really go away because of Lankmar. Howard will right. never really go away because of Conan. Uh, to some degree, Tom, Tom Godwin does have the cold equations, a nice sort of 7,000 word, whatever it is, right. uh, snapshot. Van Vogt has a sprawling body of work. Most of it. But he has one work. He has one work which made him iconic in the 1940s, and that was Slam. Which is uh, about Slam. Was, which, who cares about it anymore? Well, uh, that's that's part of the problem. I mean, part. Here's another interesting topic we could get into. Part of the problem is that Slam is the. Uh, there's a phrase that Clute came up with, I think, in the science fiction encyclopedia: the despised elite. The, the 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 image of science fiction fans reflected back on themselves. You know, these are people who are superior to everyone around them, and and yet they are despised and mistreated because they know too much. And it's 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 every bright high school kid feeling like they're, they're left out. That was clearly the appeal of 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 slam to the science fiction fandom in the nineteen fifties and nineteen forties and nineteen fifties. And I talked to people. Philip Jose Farmer had. He had never been a part of one. He had visited a slant shack. People set up housing projects where they would live communally in, uh, in slant shacks because nobody else understood them. I think part of the problem is that science fiction fandom became way more diverse than that and maybe a little bit less paranoid than that. And maybe people actually, this is my greatest fear, maybe people actually in the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2010s, maybe some of them actually did try to read slant. It makes no sense at all beyond the next 800 words. In other words, it's, it's absolute nonstop action um, that doesn't add up to anything logically except extreme paranoia. And in the United States, given our current political campaign, Slan ought to be a big hit right now, I would think. <laughs> it's, total, it's, it's completely paranoid fiction. It's a strange time we're reading in, Gary. That's very true. Mm. So, we, we, we've committed to doing a public podcast, uh, and we will record mm -hmm. others. We have to get that underway very soon, because, I mean, you're right. I mean, to sort of circle around and sh shortcut this conversation on where it was at that point, I am just back from Italy, where I did nothing mm -hmm. to do with science fiction other than finish delivering a book, uh, where I sat sort of by a swimming pool in Tuscany, and where I wandered around oh. tiny sort of hilltop villages and enjoyed their medieval hilltop townness and had some of the best food I've ever had in my life. So it was terrible. I had an awful time, as you can imagine, particularly when I look at the back afterwards. Terrible. It was awful, awful. Um, mm. And now in just three weeks, I get on a plane to head back to the, you know, head away again to come out to you. I'll be stopping in Sydney mm. and in San Francisco on the way, so that should be fun. We'll get to the, the convention. We will do the public podcast. If we can find a suitable bar, if somebody can come up with an option, and, and so far I've not seen one, we will pick a point and maybe on the Thursday or the Friday late afternoon, if we can fit it in, we will have a meet-up there for anybody who wants to. And for all the remaining listeners we have, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I think, though, that um, I, I, I should mention um, that I spent, while you were in Tuscany, I was uh, in ReaderCon, which for those people who have never been to it, used to be in a, in a remote village far away from Boston, and now is in a nearby suburb of Boston, but it's just as isolated. It's on a bluff overlooking basically nothing. Uh, and we had, a, we had a very nice time talking to people. 
one of the things I wanted to bring up in this podcast okay. was a question I started getting then, and I've been getting since then, um, from people um, probably concerned about the American presidential campaign, um, which has been described already uh, as we're recording this. This We're recording this the night uh, after Donald Trump accepted the Republican nomination. And, and what has been described been by all... Exactly. It's a Norman Spinrad novel, the novel I've heard uh, talked about more often than anyone else, than any, any other one is, is Octavia Butler's Parable of the Talents, which deals with uh, an extremely right-wing religious fundamentalist president, one of whose slogans is, make America great again. Uh, there is really chilling stuff about that. There's a Norman Spinrad, there's Bug Jack Barron, there's Sinclair Lewis, it can't happen here. There are all kinds of things. Uh, that that seem to presage this dystopian things, Jack London's The Iron Heel, for heaven's sake. But the question I get asked is this, is science fiction contributing to this apocalyptic view of the state of the world? Is science fiction really completely given up on the world? Is it pessimistic? It's an argument I know that's been made, it's been, been made by our friend Yetta de Vries for years, that science fiction can be too negative, so forth and so on. And the question I get asked is, is science fiction optimistic or pessimistic? And what's your answer, Gary? Well, my answer, of course, being a critic who can weasel his way out of any difficult question, is it's both. Yeah, the answer but is yes. The answer is yes. Uh, because there are there are things like Paolo Becciglubi's stories that are utterly... And speaking of hard science fiction, this is the hardest hard science fiction being written today in terms of ongoing processes that he can describe to you, that basically says the American Southwest is doomed. But, at the same time, I'm noticing a movement toward at least discussing utopian ideas. Uh, you see that in Joe Walton's novels, you see that in an Ada Palmer novel, you see that in Nisi Shaw's new novel. There's, there's an interest in utopianism again. Well, I think I would put it differently. First of all, to hark back to one of your opening questions, no, I don't think that science fiction contributes to the dystopian worldview. I think the dystopian worldview you see in science fiction is a, is a characteristic, an outgrowth of what's happening in society and the concerns that we have about the challenges that we're facing. That's the first thing. Right, that's true. Second, uh, no, I don't think that science fiction is overwhelmingly pessimistic even when stories are cast in a dark way. To my reading, the, the role... The purpose, the intent of a book like, say, The Water Knife, which is not a, mm. a, a, an overtly optimistic-looking book, is to so sound warning bells so that we will behave differently. It's not intended pessimistically, even if the story appears pessimistic on its surface level. Third, and this is something I noticed while mm. working on my the book I've just finished, Br Bridging Infinity. Mm. Uh, Bridging Infinity is a book about Giant engineering projects. That's basically yes. what it is. Stories that feature giant engineering projects. And the stories actually fall really clearly into two groups, neither of which were really? intended by me, really. The first is the classic hard science fiction big engineering project story. It's the kind of thing that leads to, that, that gives you a Dyson sphere, that gives you ring world, the, the, the that gives you all those kind of world. things. Yeah, enormous yeah, great right. projects in mm. space or on the face of the planet yeah. where... You know, you're moving planets around, you're moving continents around, whatever kind of crazy thing you're doing. The other group, absolutely coherently, are stories 
about projects that respond to climate change. They're not climate really? change stories, but they're but the, the 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 kicking off point is always consistently in that group of stories the climate change event and how you address it. They are attempts to answer that question. And it's because, I believe, first of all, climate change has now settled in, whether everybody believes it or they don't. It's, it is the primary problem of our time and is accepted mm -hmm. by, that way by a lot of science fiction writers when they're looking at how you address the future. And, at least for a certain school of science fiction, or for a certain gr group of science fiction, these problems have to be solvable. And so, I mean, science fiction exactly. believes that problems are solvable. It always has. That's the 30s, 40s, 50s, golden age kind of science fiction approach. And now, for those, for those kind of stories, they were, you know, nuts and bolts, hammers and whatever kind of engineering solutions. But we're mm. solving problems. And that's what you see in this other group of stories. That's what under, underpins what you're talking about elsewhere in science fiction right now. We're seeing a return to a kind of story that is looking to come up with solutions to problems and seeing how we can live through the, through what we're in and come out the other side. It's where, for example, I think you'll find that Stan Robinson's book next year sits very firmly. It, I believe, mm -hmm. I've not read it, that it will be an attempt to say, this is how we could survive climate change and come out the other side in a recognizable mm -hmm. way. So you're arguing, basically, and I would tend to agree with this, that even science fiction that on the surface appears um, disastrous, leading to dystopia, actually is simply warning about an avoidable situation. Yes. And the science fiction still believes in the fixability of things. I, 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 okay. I'm not going to pretend to, you, to say to you that every science fiction writer out there does you know, believes that, but I think it's a core right. theme, a core approach in science fiction. Well, it, I, I, I think it has been all, all along, and I think the idea... That, uh, that stimulating thought in those areas is, is worth doing. You mentioned earlier, by the way, um, and, and I was going, this is just me being didactic, but an example of that, an odd example of that, is a science fiction novel that does have to do with Kansas City, Kansas versus Kansas City, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And it's Philip Wiley's Tomorrow, which came out in, I think, 1954, maybe 1955, um, which is a nuclear war novel. And it's, an, it's actually not a nuclear war novel because it turns out, in good science fictional form, it's a civil defense novel. And it deals with two cities separated by a river, clearly modeled on Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri, because the Missouri River separates the two of them. One of them has an active civil defense program, and the other one doesn't. And then, of course, when the nuclear bombs come, guess which one manages to pull through? Now, the argument there, even though it's bad science fiction, and, it's, and Philip Wiley was... Uh, loony in all kinds of interesting ways, it still is arguing at that point, even at the height of nuclear anxiety, that civil defense will help us get through this. In other words, even nuclear devastation is fixable. Yeah. If we build our shelters and, and uh, do what... I, it's been a long time since I read the novel. Um, and I think you're right about climate change as well. I mean, Paolo has... I'd, I've not talked to him about this recently, but at least when he began writing his really depressing novels, he wanted to change policy. He wanted to change people's minds. When Stan Robinson wrote the Science in the Capital trilogy and then recently rewrote it last year, partly to update some of the science in it, it was to say global warming is coming, but there are things that can be done, specific policy things. Um, and 
I, I think you're right. I think science fiction has always done that. So what looks to be a, 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 a dystopian scenario actually is a didactic, a didactic scenario about how we avoid this dystopian outcome. Hmm. And it, it, it's sort of, if you will, to stretch metaphors greatly, it's like a... How would I put it? It's like an enormous boa constrictor trying to swallow an enormous... Absorb this bitter pill and deal with it. You know, it's like, how does our culture deal with what we're facing? There's all kinds of things to concern us, to uh, worry us, to make us very potentially depressed about the future. And science. Well, is it all bitter? Hmm? Go ahead. No, you say. Finish your thought. Uh, Uh, Does it mean science fiction is there to sort of say? One of the things it's there to say is, yes, it's bad, but it doesn't have to be unfixable. And you know. Well, one thing you don't want, right. uh, well, I don't want, is you don't want a naive kind of response that says, oh, here's some magical kind of piece of technology that fixes it, you know. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. There's going to be some terrible, terrible things happen, but maybe we can all come through if we work it out in the end. I think that's true, and I think when I mentioned earlier the novels that are interested in utopian ideas, uh, in, including Nisi Shaw and Ada Palmer and Joe Walton, they tend to either to be fantasies, often to histories. Joe Walton just basically has the gods set up a, a, a an ideal city based on Plato's Republic, and then when when that's going to be destroyed, the, the Zeus just moves it to another planet. So, in other words, it's essentially a fantasy. Yeah. Um, the the Nisi Shaw novel Everfair, very interesting, steampunk based on the Belgian Congo uh, oppression by King Leopold, is an alternate history, a kind of steampunk alternate history. So it's not really saying we could do anything about that. And the Ada Palma thing is set in the 24th century or something and just kind of eludes what happened in the past. Uh, so, so what you do have is a number of stories, including since we keep coming back to Stan Robinson, who may be the most, um, maybe the most overtly and directly political science fiction writer in the sense of talking about policy, writing a story like Aurora, which now that it's a couple of years old, we no longer have to worry about spoiling, basically saying that generation starships won't work, but saying that for a particular reason. Mm. Saying that because if you really think the myth that science fiction has promulgated, that worst case scenario, we leave the planet and go somewhere else, ain't going to work. Uh, we are not going to be able to do what Octavia Butler wanted us to do in the Earth Seed mythology of, of colonies. We're not going to be able to go to other planets. We're not going to find... We're going to have to fix the problems here. So the end point of Aurora really became, you better do something about Earth because you ain't going anywhere else. Yeah. By the way, did you say Earth Seed in there, or do you mean Hainish? No, Earth Seed. The oh, Earth oh, Seed okay. religion in Octavia Butler's okay. Parable yeah. of the Thor and Parable of the Talents. And, and, and Butler, in, in her defense, wasn't talking about that as policy. She was talking about that. I asked her once about why... Why does this main character of hers invent a religion that involves going off planet? And her her response was not what you'd call an idealistic response. It was that's the only thing she could figure out for black people to do was to go away, find someplace better. And even if she didn't believe that was going to happen, she invented a religion that was based on. Oh, it's, it's 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 a very interesting set of books, and I think they're very relevant today. But it's about a religion based on one of science fiction's central myths, which is that we can always go to another world or other worlds. Yeah. Okay. So what else have we been doing? Science fiction? Sa- Sorry, yeah, what are you saying? 
No, I, I, I was going to say, in, in terms of being optimistic and pessimistic, I think one of the interesting things about science fiction, which you pointed out a few minutes ago, is that what appears to be pessimistic is, in its intent, optimistic. That is, these horrible outcomes are avoidable because the conditions that lead to them are still fixable. Yes. And certainly science fiction is committed to the idea that everything is fixable. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. The difference between, the difference between a Cormac McCarthy uh, novel like The Road, which is completely devoid of any explanation as to what happened, it's, it's a flash goes across the sky and everything bad happens after that. That's an apocalyptic vision, which is very grim, very hopeless, very kind of existential in its outlook, um, but not really science fictional in its yeah. conception. The science fiction version of that is going to explain to you what happened. Uh, and if it explains to you what happened, the minute you say that, the minute you're saying, we can avoid that, we can, we can do something else. Uh, He's not giving us any out because he's not writing science fiction. He's writing apocalyptic visionary literature. Yes. Um, but I, 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 all, the, all the nuclear war stories I've read, and it's interesting that that's a genre which has kind of died out. And may it may pop up again now now that we have presidential campaign in this country. Um, but it was uh, the nuclear war story was almost always based on the idea that a we can prevent this from happening, or b if we do. If it does happen, if we're well prepared, the kind of survivalist fantasy of, uh, of nuclear war stories, we can build a society that corrects some of the mistakes of the older one. I think that's true. Uh, Interesting. So what else you that, that was the. Oh no! What else have I been reading? Um, well, the, the, uh, apart from that, I've been reading. I was reading your year's best anthology. I've been reading. Uh, I just started reading the introduction to what I think is an important, um, if, if, if not dramatic, step forward of science fiction, the Library of America, um, the Complete Orsinian Tales by Ursula Le Guin, is something that came in the mail today. It is, except for Philip K. Dick and Kurt Vonnegut Jr., the first single-volume uh, collection of a contemporary, and in this case, living science fiction and fantasy writer with her own introduction in it. Uh, and, and they'll be doing more Le Guin volumes in the future, I understand. So, so, so actually, so yes, that's so, incorrect. So actually, this is the first living science fiction writer they've published, isn't it? Or was there um, one in your set? That's correct. Well, when, when my set came out, Fred Pohl was still alive. Okay. Um, so technically, he was a living science fiction writer. Both Dick and Vonnegut uh, had long since passed away before their volumes came out. They've been very hesitant about doing living writers. They did Philip Roth when he was still alive. They're doing Le Guin. The editorial work on it, we should give credit to my friend Brian Atterbury, who has been Le Guin's kind of uh, amanuensis when it comes to editing these things. But it's it's all the Orsinian short stories and the novel Malafrenia. And then later on, I believe, although I can't say this officially, they'll be doing the Hainish stories. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I mean, if anybody is, for want of a better word, worthy, it's Le Guin, without a doubt. Oh, absolutely. Um, the other, uh, the other reason people are asking me about whether science fiction is op- optimistic or pessimistic, I don't know how much we want to get into this. Is so much more than any other presidential campaign in, in my memory, 
so much science fiction imagery is surrounding the current presidential rhetoric. Now, this may change in the next week or so, um, but but there is a kind of uh, I, this is why people are asking me why science whether science fiction is optimistic or, pe- or pessimistic. There is a worldview contest going on now between apocalypticism and what you might call liberal hope. Uh, and that, I expect, will play out in the next three and a half months here in the States. Uh, and I suspect that we will hear more about um, about how this is reflected in culture and literature. Um, the dystopian visions of the future that we get uh, in, in young adult novels and in movies aren't logical. They, they, they aren't the result of anything in particular happening. They just There's a bad world and it came about and you can't trust adults anymore. Um, are there... This is this is, goes back to the optimistic thing. And I'm not talking about the kind of utopian fantasias of, uh, of, of, of Joe Walton or, or even Nisi Shaw. Is there a sense that you get in reading all the science fiction that you read that... The future just might be cool and interesting. Not even, not, not even, not uncritically cool and interesting. But when we read Neuromancer, even though we knew everything was wrong with that world, I don't know. We thought this is cool. I kind of feel like when Cyberpunk came along, although it had yeah, its nihilistic edge to it, nonetheless, it was primarily about things that were cool and made you go wow. I don't get that feeling right now. I don't get the feeling that there's that same kind of techno-gadget, futuristic idea kind of wow thing happening. Um, Instead, there's this more hmm, sober underpinning uh, approaching of problems. I mean, I I guess you do get some of it when you you come up with... you know, solutions to these problems where you have to come up with something fairly clever yeah. to make it happen. And that's some of the, if you like, remaining sense of wonder or if you want to call it a, what would you call it, a um, sense of the mechanical sublime coming through. Okay, yeah, that's a good term. Uh, it's, it's the kind of thing they were trying, uh, it's the kind of thing the hieroglyph anthology attempted to do a few years ago. And I don't think really succeeded that. But the well, idea well, well, that the there's cool stuff that we can do. Yeah. In defense of, of, of uh, the Hieroglyph Project, which was perfectly fine, it was never going to succeed in its goals, if only because the tools that we're using weren't adequate to the task. Well, yeah, and the tools we were using weren't necessarily designed for that task. I mean, one of the things, uh, this, this brings us back to the problem with the cold equations, the problem with science fiction as problem solving, is that most writers today are much more attuned to issues of character and setting, and, and more traditional literary values. I mean, the cold equations worked as well as it did because it has no real characters in it at all. It has it has archetypes. It has sure, placeholders. That's so, so, so if you get a story, uh, well, you, you get a story like, um, well, let's, let's use our mutual friend, one of my favorite novels of last year, and I'm still irritated at its lack of availability in the United States, our friend uh, James Bradley's Clay. It's a very humanistic generational saga dealing with several, uh, three generations at least of a family uh, in Australia and England around the world. And it's a survival story. It's a story which ends up, oddly enough, being uplifting in a world which has completely gone to hell. Um, That's the literary optimism. Literary optimism is the enduring human spirit sort of thing. 
I, I guess mm. it is. I mean, certainly I think there's an element in James's book where, in fact, James's worldview, I suspect, where in order to remain sane, uh, you have to a- attempt to be optimistic. You have to look for those solutions. Yeah. Otherwise, it's basically, why did we have children? The end times are coming. Give up and die. Right. And that's not really a very satisfactory kind of way of looking at life, is it? So. No, but it's a humanistic response to a kind of science fiction mythology because yeah. the idea, the reason I mentioned Clade is because it's not, it, it is not a novel which at any point says, we can avoid this. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a novel that has any prescription for avoiding the world. It simply plays out a scenario that seems more or less underway right now. And the only, the only redeeming feature of the novel, as you say, is, is the human capacity to retain optimism. And I mean, ask, answer this though. I mean, do you think that you could imagine a a story or a novel, a science fiction story or a novel that addressed climate change that took any other approach? You know, that basically said, "Oh well, we can get around it or whatever else. There won't be some terrible price to pay. Uh, it's all going to be." Uh-huh. I mean, wouldn't that be hopelessly Pollyanna-ish? It would be Pollyannish, and worse, it would be bad science fiction. Yeah. I mean, one of the things which is interesting to me about climate change is that it is, is, is the inevitability of processes which are already underway. In other words, it's, it's orbital fiction. The orbit is set. We're going to intersect that thing at some point in the future. Uh, and that's what's made hard science fiction always work. So the idea that we can simply avoid this or find an easy fix for it uh, is something that any... Any humanistic writer would object to as being manipulative and, and unrealistic in her character. Any hard science fiction writer would reject as saying, you can't pull stuff out of your hat. There were things, for example, in Stan Robinson's uh, uh, Science in the Capital trilogy where you do things like carbon se- se- sequestering lichens on trees. There are things you can do to mitigate climate change. And science fiction writers know what they are. They also know that none of them are solutions. How significant do you think it is that science fiction is having to think about such an intransigent problem in a practical way? How do you think it impacts you when you have to come up with things that take a long time to solve? That, I think, has changed a lot of the nature of science fiction, except in a, there are two ways of answering that. One is from the kind of scientific point of view, Yes, we don't seem to be able to avoid this, and therefore we have to talk about survival fiction at some point. What does it look like on the other side of this? In a sense, that's not much different from what science fiction writers felt in the 1950s when they, when many of them believed absolutely in the inevitability of nuclear war, which is yep. why so many nuclear doom novels weren't about nuclear doom. They were about survival afterwards. They were about how long it will take generations centuries, millennia in the case of the Canticle for Leibowitz, uh, but but the idea was still that, you know, society could rebound eventually. Yeah. And I think that, that idea of rebounding is, is, is still there. Uh, Do you I th- don't think yeah. that science fiction has faced... Go, go ahead. I was, I was, I was, my question was, I'm not sure that science fiction has faced anything quite like climate change before. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the sense that you have virtually the entirety of the scientific community pointing out that there are certain things that are already irredeemable. And the only question now is how many more things 
will become irredeemable. Uh, how many extinctions are inevitably going to happen? How many coastlines are inevitably going to go away? Um, and in, in the past, even when you were talking about nuclear war, which is the great apocalypse, or you talked about plagues, which was just kind of a universal, always available apocalypse going way back to Mary Shelley, those were always if this thing happens. Now science fiction is faced with something which is happening, and I'm not sure it's happened that dramatically. I'm not sure that that kind of issue has been faced um, unequivocally by science fiction at any point in the past. No. Well, I can't think of an equivalent to use Will McIntosh's term, slow apocalypse that has happened in, in, mm-hmm. in, our, in our past, uh, you know, at least in terms of the, while science fiction has been a thing. Um, and I don't see that... I, I don't know. I'm curious to see how it's going to play out because you know, all of science fiction can't simply be about this one thing. And yet, it's the one true piece of hard science fiction in front of us, isn't it? Well, I think it's one thing that becomes part of the default future in science fiction novels. I mean, Which it is, you yeah. see novels... Uh, stories by Stephen Baxter, who, who's written his own apocalyptic novels, in which the Florida archipelago is simply a given. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not something he's warning us about. It's simply part of the future that we're going to have. Yeah. You know, the future we're going to have is not going to have the Maldives Islands existing anywhere anymore. They're just going to be gone. Yeah. Um, and I think that's as much a kind of consensus future as the... Um, the mega cities were back in the fifties. The Boss Wash Complex, you know, or all everything from Boston, Massachusetts to Washington D.C. would be one mega city. That was kind of a consensus future. It hasn't really happened, but it's sort of, kind of, maybe almost happened. Now you're dealing with something which science fiction writers just, I think, assume is going to be happening. And if you assume that's what the future is, then you don't focus all your fiction on on that future. Yeah. Uh, you can't write all your science fiction about how awful climate change is going to be because we've passed that marker. Yeah. That sounds depressing, doesn't it? That does have, yeah, it's fun. This is great. Let's give it up now and walk off a cliff. Oh, I mean, it, 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 it's related to giving up interstellar travel. I mean, one of the, one of the great movements in science fiction now, I think... Uh, and it, 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 it's, it's an argument I made about time travel. It's an argument I'm about to make about telepathy. There, there are fantasy elements that have always been kind of absorbed by science fiction because they're so cool. No scientist since 1920 has probably thought time travel is going to happen. It's not possible. Interstellar travel is becoming less and less and less likely. Uh, and, and yet science fiction is not going to give it up because they're good stories. But there's going to be a divide, I think, between science fiction, which is fantasy in disguise. Oh, sure. That is, science fiction that deals with, okay, we're going to, we're galaxy-busting star smashers and so forth and so on. We're never going to lose those stories. We're just going to lose the capacity to believe that those stories could ever happen. Oh, look, they become epic fantasy in a science fictional mode, which is interesting in itself. Exactly, exactly. But exactly, that's yeah, what you say that, but it's obviously not yet something that is universally accepted. I mean, I read, read a piece just this morning by C.J. Cherry uh, saying that she believes that interstellar travel is uh, possible and, and may well happen. I know that somebody like uh, Greg Benford, who I you know have been in correspondence mm. with just recently, is very fervently pro the whole idea of interstellar travel. Um, 
I think the point of the Stan Robinson book, Aurora, isn't to argue against it. It's to argue about investing in the world we're in and to argue against the entirely destructive and negative view that this is some, that this, this planet we live on is something that we can kind of trash and leave behind that won't really matter. Right. That's the real issue there. No, I, I tend to also buy the idea in Aurora that interstellar travel is at least astoundingly unlikely, if not impossible. Yeah, I mean, the, the argument he's making, he's making a specific argument about the Generation Starship there, which uh, is, is, is one of those things that you think, okay, technologically it's possible to build one of those things. But, you know, he's worked out as many details as he can. Now, I know Benford argues with this. Bar, ben, Benford argues, I've talked to him about this, that, that Stan has cheated left and right. He's, he's, he's basically set up his generation starship to fail. It's a kind of uh, a political arrangement that he's made in his narrative. Uh, you could work at it both ways, but by and large, the generation starship is technologically possible theoretically. Whether anybody would ever want to live on one is another question. And if you don't have generation starships, which really still don't get you space operas, um, then you're stuck with, with wormholes or heat cheese or... Uh, in various magical ways of getting to other star well, systems. I have to say that this is the. Other and you're part. right. I fantasy. Well, this is the part where I mean, I, I do sort of come up against a bit in terms of a setting for stories because I look at the environments described in Aurora by Stan Robinson. You know, when they reach mm-hmm. another star, right? And I suppose it is a rich setting for a particular kind of story. But I do remember being struck, and in defense of the author here, John Scalzi, he was not arguing anything to the contrary. Uh, I remember being struck when I read Old Man's War for the first time, which has the oldest of old-fashioned kind of ideas. That, you, know, you get off off the planet, and suddenly there's this rich bazaar of you know uh, interstellar life, all different kinds of mm-hmm. species of, of people interacting and whatever else. And it seems purest fantasy, really purest fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, and I don't know if it's helpful to science fiction to have it or not. Yeah, well, well, I, certainly, I certainly think. It, it, sorry, yeah. And, 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 go ahead, finish your thought. My thought is, I think that the big hard SF space opera kind of story slash novel is looking for a new purpose right now and hasn't found it yet. I think that's true. I think that to some extent. The, uh, the old-fashioned slam-bang, the Scalzi kind of adventure that you're talking about, it's not going to go away. It's simply going to be subsumed in a kind of tacitly agreed-upon uh, attitude that this is really kind of fantasy. The kind of thing that happened with, with last year, for example, with, uh, with George Martin and Gardner de Zois' Old Venus. This, that whole anthology was based on the idea that we know that Venus doesn't exist, but it was so cool that let's pretend it did. Yeah. So basically, you're taking a 1930s science fiction idea and repurposing it as a kind of metafictional 2016-2015 fantasy story, which only pretends to be science fiction. Yeah, draped in a kind of nostalgia that I find a little disturbing. I don't find it terribly disturbing because I'm a sucker for it. I'm one of the people who liked the movie John Carter. Yeah, I like uh, to so say. let's. But I mean, John Carter's a, okay, is a cool. real fantasy novel uh, movie. But anyway, let me ask you one thing. Yeah, we're, like, is, we're, we're like about eight, ten minutes from the end of this, ep- this podcast, mm-hmm. Gary, and I don't know that we've come to any great thing other than to say there's stuff to read and you should come along and listen to our podcast where we'll ramble some more at uh, mm-hmm. Kansas. 
city. But let me ask you, just as a service to our readers, because they are always looking for things to read, what have you read and enjoyed recently, Gary? Uh, what I've been reading and enjoying recently. Well, one of the novels which is coming out, um, I think in August, is China Meables, The Last Days of New Paris. I may have mentioned that in a previous podcast, and if I did, I apologize, because it explores the relationship between science fiction and surrealism, which surprisingly has gone unexplored. You'd think there'd be an alliance there. There's a Lisa Goldstein novel called The Dream Years, which deals with the surrealists, and there are there's obviously been a lot of surrealist imagery in China's own stuff, but this is this actually has surrealist monsters stomping around Paris in an alternate history. I think it's China's only alternate history novel. And speaking of that kind of alternate, whatever it is, um, there's a new novel by Christopher Priest called, called The Gradual, set in his dream archipelago, which is either the most straightforward narrative we've seen from Christopher Priest in about 20 years, or I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm not sure which. Okay. Well, I when I was in, in Tuscany, drinking Chianti mm-hmm. and watching the sunset late at night, I read Garth Nix's fifth Old Kingdom novel, Golden Hand, which will oh. be out in stores in October. It is the direct sequel to Aborson. Uh, even though it follows on chronologically, I suppose, in, in terms of publication from the very, very good Clariel. And I enjoyed it mm. a great deal. I think it's a very, very good fantasy novel. Uh, I mean, I think Garth's um, Old Kingdom books are, are, are the best thing he does. And th- these really are, this really is a very, very good book. Well, Clariel was, 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 which was, I remember reading that, I don't think I reviewed it a long time ago. But it, it seemed to be a kind of uh, I, I, he's he's got a unique voice, and I don't know how to identify it. Yeah, I don't know where that voice belongs in terms of other fantasy writers. We like from very historical fantasy writers like Guy K to very fantasy fantasy writers, um, like um, I don't know who. I don't know, but I think but a, there is certainly a story. There's a voice that he that, that Garth has that he uses for the Old Kingdom stuff that's not in his other work. And it's very compelling and engaging and endearing. Um, yeah, it was very, very good. I've also started to read uh, Crosstalk, the new Connie Willis book, which is coming out, I think, September or uh-huh. something, which I'm hoping we'll pick up. Um, what else? Oh, I will be... Oh, I've read... Go ahead. I'll be looking back at... Um, Lavi Tidhar Central Station again, because next week we'll be talking about that book on the Coot Street Round Table with James and Ian. Oh, excellent. Um, one other title I've uh, read, which is one that several of us have been waiting for for well over a decade at this point, is, is Peter Beagle's new novel, Summerlong. Summerlong, which is his first uh, novel since I don't know when, I guess. I mean, uh, there, there have been novellas and stuff, but one of the things that's interesting to me about Beagle is that um, apart from uh, the fact that too many people know him only as the author of The Last Unicorn, the short fiction that he's published in the decades really since his last major novel has to me been astonishing. Some of it's been very uh, autobiographical, Mm -hmm. some of it's been humorous, there's been a kind of sense of Almost Bernard Malamud, the, 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 the rabbi's hobby, for example, is a wonderful story. 
uh, in all kinds of ways. Very complex, very cleverly worked out, and uh, literary in the best sense, by which I mean I could take that story and have done it and some other stories and show them to people who have no interest in fantasy at all and they think this is this is really good this is this guy knows this stuff and there, that that happens in summer long as well it works as a mainstream novel and i yeah. know that sounds like a handed compliment well i think i think it, it is i think his previous novel was T- tamson back in 1999 tamson right and um and and to some extent a lot of what he's been doing uh I, except for, I think there was a novella based in the world of the, the last unicorn, uh, but he's moved away from that. I mean, one I think one of Beagle's best novels is the Innkeeper's Song, which yep. is just beautifully written, and in many ways is minimalist fantasy. The invention in that story is only what is needed to con- to move the story forward. It's 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 not a it's not an elaborate secondary world. It is an archetypal tale yeah. that works really well. And this has some of that flavor to it. Uh, it's uh, it's based in Greek mythology. I mean, most people will figure out what the myth is yeah. uh, fairly early on. But it's set in Seattle. It's, it's uh, partly maybe I was reading it after I spent a, uh, a weekend in Seattle, and I thought he's got this. He's nailed this place. He's nailed these characters. He's nailed the weather. Even it's just a really evocative piece of work. Um, and I'm glad to see that he's doing it. And it's from Tachyon, which. Yeah. Uh, has been doing very good work in that in, yeah. in supporting Peter's career. Yeah, well, I certainly encountered. Actually, I didn't encounter Peter with the Last Unicorn. I encountered him with Folk of the Air, which is a novel I still feel okay. very fondly about. Or towards so. And it's it's interestingly enough, it's one I was disappointed in. I think um, a lot of people were partly right? because. Well, not because of. Not so, not so much because of the last unicorn. Last unicorn is one of those things that is out there by itself. You know, I never wanted him to write a sequel to it, but I had read um, a fine and private place, yeah, uh, which I thought was just terrific. And that, I, I think I read the last unicorn, and then I read a fine and private place, and I even read at some point I read I see by my outfit, uh, yeah. uh, which is his kind of road uh, thing. But the thing that, uh, when The Folk of the Air came out, I mean, partly because I knew people who were involved in the Society for Creative Anachronism, and I didn't like them, and I didn't want to read a novel about them. And basically, the creative anachronism people seem to be behind that novel in some way, in the sense that he's portraying a version of them. Yeah. Well, look, we're pretty much at the end of our hour, Gary. We've stumbled through, having come back from holidays. Well, we stumbled through. Mm-hmm. And we're going to sort of talk to maybe Liza Trombie next week, I think is the plan, about new and exciting mm-hmm. books and other kinds of things, as well as recording the roundtables. <coughs> That'll be a busy week. And then I think we have another week of podcasting, and then we're off again for a little while because of Worldcon. Because of Worldcon, and then we'll be doing some from Worldcon. We don't exactly know what they'll be other than the one that we have planned to do on stage in front of an audience yeah. with with Ted Johnson and, and Michael Swanwick. I was, by the way... Speaking of Michael Swanwick, he is also, um, for people who have not seen him before or are going to read a comic, he's just absolutely delightful. I was reading his guidebook to Beasts of the Late Cretaceous or something oh, yeah. like that last night, a collection of short, short stories. And it's just, it's very difficult to bring off a short, short story. And we can talk about this on a podcast again. But he knows how to do that. And it's almost a lost art. And for you, and, and actually to other anthologists, 
who did years best? I, Rich Horton and, and, and Gardner and Paula Garan. Well, Paula Garan did the novellas this year's. You should start looking at short short stories. They're hard to find, and they're really, really, really hard to do well. They're not hard to find. They're just really, really, really hard to do well. Well, they're, okay, out, that's they're out there. The point I'm making. Swan, they're okay. out there, right? And I know most of them read like jokes. Most of them read like single punchline puns, jokes, whatever. Ferdinand Fiegel stories from Reginald Bretner. Anyway. We've made it to the end of the hour. We will be back anyway. next week. There will be another Cood Street podcast. This is number 785,000 or something. Uh, it's something Whatever. Like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I don't even remember Close now. We've been six, six, it's six and a half years worth. I mean, they must be bored. Uh, I think we're up for episode 280, Gary. We're, we're lagging behind. We we're going to get episode 300 out this year. Let's see how we do. Anyway. We'll, we'll see how we do starting. Oh, no. Until next time. We will this be the, the Ben, the Kuchy Podcast.